Welcome to the third season of The Morning Glory Project, Stories of Determination. I'm your host, Betsy Graziani-Fassbinder, and together with my co-producer, Angela Washington, we bring you really amazing stories of amazing people. I'm so lucky that I get to have these conversations and to share them with you. These are conversations with people who have overcome, people who have endured, people who have gone on when others might not have. They've overcome losses or tragedies, disappointments and heartbreaks, or they've seen a goal and pursued it to its end. And what I'm really fascinated by is they don't just share that they had these stories or that they lived them, but how, what were their inspirations? What were the resources they used? What ideas kept them going? How did they dig deep and find what they needed to find to go on? Because it's my belief that when we learn how someone else got through hard times or found their goals, that we learn how we might be able to do the same. Thank you so much for listening to the Morning Glory Project. And if you like what you hear, give us a like or a share on your social media site or golly, use the good old-fashioned word of mouth and tell a friend about us. We love sharing these stories with other people. Thanks for listening. Today, I welcome to the Morning Glory Project, Angela Muir Van Etten. As a dual citizen of New Zealand and the United States, Angela served as national president of both little people organizations and qualified as a lawyer in both countries. She was admitted to the bar in New Zealand, Ohio, and New York. As a dwarf of three feet, four inches, LPA has twice awarded Angela its highest honor, the Kitchen's Meritorious Service Award. For her work as a leader in banning dwarf tossing, in licensing establishments in New York and Florida, and in breaking the six-inch reach barrier in buildings and facilities open to the public throughout America, Angela has been a legal writer and editor of Disability Civil Rights Law, books for Thomas Reuter, a staff writer for the Christian Law Associate, and an advocate and coordinator for the Coalition for Independent Living Options. Her articles on dwarfism and disability advocacy have been published in LPA Today and online in the HuffPost blog. Angela lives in Florida with her husband of 40 years, where she is active in church ministry. She's the author of three books. One is Dwarfs Don't Live in Dollhouses. The second is Pass Me Your Shoes. And the third, Always an Advocate. Angela, welcome to the Morning Glory Project. I'm so pleased to have you today. Thank you. I look forward to our conversation. So, Angela, let me do some term things because I want to do this right. You and I spoke earlier, and your preference for, you use the term dwarfism, but you typically talk about people with your condition or or similar conditions as little people. Is that the, the term that's preferred? Well, I hate to complicate life for people. Um, it sort of depends on the person you're talking to. Some prefer to be called little people. Some prefer short stature. Some prefer dwarf. Mm. So that doesn't make it easy okay. for people wanting to use the right term. Uh, the bottom line is little people of America is actually trying to move away from the term little person and prefers people to reference the organization by using LPA. But of course, most people don't know what LPA means, so <laughs> it is usually spelled out, Little People of America. Okay. But that's that's the history 
of the LPA, but I can tell you for sure the one term that is considered very offensive is the word midget. Mm. And there's a lot of advocacy around that, a lot of uh, businesses, sports teams, you name it, or kids trying to, or even adults making fun of people use the word midget. And it's, it's very, very derogatory and offensive. So we steer people away from that. And for the most part, when people say, what should I call you? Um, best thing to do is uh, parents are teaching their kids, just call me by my name. <laughs> so <laughs> it's like, you yeah, you know, we don't need a label. Uh, let's just use the name. Right. Well, you know, that's going on in so many arenas. And my desire in asking the question is that I always want to call people by their preference. We have had a a past guest, uh, Francine Falk Allen, who is a polio survivor. And she, for example, she prefers the term handicapped to disabled and other people in her arena don't like that term. Right, right. And LGBTQ, some people love being called queer and other people find that offensive. So so we're all struggling. And, it's, and- it, is a, it is a struggle. In fact, when I was giving a talk with some high school students one time, I, I thought they kind of were following along with me when I said, talking about terminology, I said, well, I grew up crippled and then I was handicapped and now I'm disabled. <laughs> and this young man who I had no idea hadn't followed me afterwards, he came up and said, well, how, how did you become disabled instead of handicapped? <laughs> so it's like he actually thought I had, I was the one who would change. He missed it. I was talking about the terminology. Well, so I will call you Angela. Thank so, you. So Angela, can you tell me how common it is, how common dwarfism of all of its varieties is? How, how many people would call themselves small of stature or little people? How common is it? Well, it, it's, it's not that common. The geneticists are coming up and breaking down the different types of dwarfism, breaking it out into you know one type might now be two types. So over time, they say there's now about 400 different types. So depending on the type, how frequent it is. There are many that are quite rare. And then the most common type of dwarfism, which is achondroplasia, which accounts for about 60%. That occurs in about twenty to 30,000 people. In, in the U.S.? In the United States. Per live births, sorry. twenty to 30,000 live births have achondroplasia. And then all the other variations have, each one would have a different, uh, incident uh, of of so basically in the United States um, there's probably somewhere between thirty and forty thousand people with dwarfism. So it's a small amount, and and what it means for those of us of average stature or average build is that the likelihood of having close acquaintances with this condition is is slim, and so it's a it's a novelty in a way. And one of the things that you and I talked about before this is that for some of us, the only acquaintance we have other than the occasional sighting of somebody who is small is that we've seen, you know, television programs and the wizard of Oz and circus kinds of things in the, from the past. Right. And so there's this very weird feeling that I have around it, which is that, I know that there's been exploitation, 
of people with with conditions like yours and i don't want to contribute to that in any way so i don't when i encounter somebody there there is still also an admitted i'll call it curiosity as opposed to i don't want to ever ogle somebody or anything like that anybody who has any condition so there's a there's a curiosity and that's what i want to enter our conversation with which is basically tell me what it's like to to have the condition that you have what are the what are the challenges and what drives you crazy or what are the what are the pluses <laughs> well the curiosity factor is definitely there and partly it's because as you say it's unusual for somebody to come across somebody with dwarfism um but it's also uh can be used to our advantage and that a lot of people especially as you're an adult and you're trying to find a way to make to stand out you know you're paying people pay pay a lot of money for marketing advertising and we have an automatic uh distinction distinction (laughs) when i was practicing law the thing that people would try and um show that how different they were you know it could be their hat or whatever um is number one you can be underestimated and so that worked to my advantage because people look at you and don't think you're going to be able to do much of anything mm. and uh, of course that's totally wrong because a person uh, a little person can accomplish just as much as anybody else. Do you think that people kind of project a, a childlike quality? They assume yes. They assume a, a child, a child's capabilities. I guess is what I mean. When that's obviously, it, it seems so absurd, but we project all kinds of assumptions on people because of how they look, right? Right, right. And yeah, so you're not treated um, as you should be. You can you can be. Uh, put on a pedestal and, and pa- patronized or, you know, you lo- you're not equal because you're put up on this, in this um, position that you, where you don't belong because you can't fit in. I mean, we want to fit in and we are this uh, able to, to accomplish most of what other well, people that, do. That sounds like what I, I have heard termed the bigotry of low expectations. Yes, <laughs> that people that's that's that weird pedestal they elevate you simply because you're a, you don't want to be reduced because you're a small person and you don't want to be elevated because you're a small person you want right. to be respected for the capabilities and talents and accomplishments of your own irrespective of your size right and um so the advantage when you people re- do remember you so uh the curiosity and and you know so we're in a situation where we need to talk maybe it's a business setting or you know getting served in a restaurant if you come back people are going to remember you mm-hmm. and so it's in your interest to uh, be polite because if you're not uh then it's going to come back to hurt you later well that strikes me as like you say it can be an advantage but it also seems like there's a certain conspicuousness to being different yes and and that it draws attention and and that then you can't sort of you can't have the same flub ups that other people might have because it would stick in the memory more well yeah that that it does but um we actually do have the same flub ups of course of course so we're not above other people we're not below other people so we just if we if i accept myself for who i am and i'm not apologetic i'm not ashamed i'm not hiding and then i come out and and i get introduced to someone and we go on as though it's just a normal 
greeting, well, then people start to relax. You know, that curiosity thing kind of wears off. You know, people mm-hmm. get tired of that. So right. it, the, the curiosity thing is mainly a problem among strangers. Once you have the opportunity to interact with people, then they come to appreciate, hey, she can talk. Um, she, <laughs> hey, she she's can, not just this package. <laughs> yeah, she she can talk better than me or, you know, as happens, you know, when, when you're uh, in a professional setting, people find out, well, maybe you know this case better than they do. Uh, and so they don't put out their best effort and then they regret that. <laughs> Well, so there, there are there are two. I'm thinking kind of of three challenges. One that we've been talking about, which is this kind of social stigma and the conspicuousness and people's assumptions about that. The other two that come to mind as I think about it and as I've read read bits of your story is, first of all, just the physicality. Not only the the health challenges that come. It's not just that your body is smaller. There are there are challenges that come with dwarfism of various types and different different challenges with the different variations of, of all of the strange chromosomal differences and all of that. Skeletal is more common than the chromosome. Yeah, there are chromosomal oh, okay. causes, but primarily it's skeletal. But and so those challenges impact your physical health. Your the, yes. Uh, can you tell me a bit about about that? What what. What do the skeletal challenges cause? What kinds of challenges do they bring? Well, again, it's it's uh, specific to each different type. And uh, the, the most common type, as I mentioned, achondroplasia, which we abbreviate to acons, <laughs> not acorns, <laughs> to acons. Acons. Um, is, uh, when I say we, I'm talking about people who are members of little P- LPA. Mm-hmm. Spinal problems. Um, there's a narrower spinal cord, and that uh, over time can uh, cause a lot, a lot of little people as they get older have issues with uh, spinal stenosis, which is the uh, narrowing causes problems with the spinal cord, which can create paralysis and needs for surgery. And sometimes those surgeries go well, sometimes they don't. Many people have multiple surgeries. And then with the legs, there's an issue with the bowing of the legs, which thankfully there is a fairly common surgical procedure that's available um, to straighten that. Because if you don't get that done, then you the, uh, as the person grows, uh, their foot is going in there on their sort of on their ankle, and mm-hmm. so it really affects mobility. So there's a, a procedure, uh, an orthopedic surgeon can usually take care of that. But often you see older people that never got that done, and then they well, their their mobility is quite limited. And then there's issues with the ear, nose, and throat. Um, again, it's all to do with the canal is being smaller which which is why very often there's a difference in the voice quality possibly i never thought about the voice quality being related to that but yeah a lot of children young children are they have continuous ear infections Mm. uh, so they'll get tubes put in so i guess going back to the spine there can be uh uh fluid and problems so it's really important for parents to be involved medically to know that's why the diagnosis of the type of dwarfism is really important so that you know what medical issues are likely to crop up and need to be managed right well so and then the third area that i think about is is the physical challenge in the world 
just because, I mean, I think about counters being high and steps and curbs and those kinds of things. And I know that's where your book, Always an Advocate, really focuses upon what you've done in terms of advocacy for not only physical access, but also anti-discrimination. So can you tell me a bit about your life as an activist? (laughs) <laughs> and an activist advocate. Um, yes, yes. Again, going back to, you know, some questions people ask when I uh, was working as an advocate and would uh, give presentations on, um, you know, Disability Awareness Day, those kind of things. Uh, somebody asked me, how long have you been an advocate? Which is really where the title of the book came from. And I thought about it for a while. I thought, wow, I don't remember ever not being an advocate. So it's like always, like so your whole life you're advocating to be included, to be, you know, not left out, to be, um, you know, maybe the counter can't be changed at the, in the moment, so you need to find a way to reach things, like in the grocery store, advocate for yourself, ask people to pass you something, but there are, there of course, now everybody hopefully knows about the Americans with Disabilities Act since it was passed in 1990, but you'd be amazed how many people are still not following it. That law requires businesses, anything that's open, any place that's open to the public to be um, accessible to people with disabilities, and that includes people in wheelchairs and people who use walkers and canes and it helps little people as well. So there needs to be a uh, either a part of that building needs to, or say it's a counter, it's a service area. There should be an area that's lower down so that a person in a wheelchair could, or a person with dwarfism. Right. Usually we're standing eye to looking each other eye to eye. Actually, we have a lot in common. Um, <laughs> And and although also a lot of little people do wear, do use wheelchairs or scooters for mobility because mobility um, distance walking is problematic, right. for, including for myself. And one of the photographs that that you shared with me that that we're circulating around is a picture of somebody who is in front of an ATM machine that, yes. that has been lowered. And you know that's one of the things that that for somebody of average height like myself you don't even think about how hard it would be just to get cash out of a machine. Yes. And, and I, little people of America appointed me as a delegate that didn't just happen by accident. That was a long, long battle and a fierce battle with industry. that did not want to lower. And it wasn't the lowering of the ATMs now is required for new and, um, renovated but i mean you don't renovate an atm <laughs> if, right. if so if new installation they have to have um meet a i call it breaking the six inch reach barrier and there's a whole chapter on that what, what it took to get that change and it because there are really there's not enough of us for to have been a powerful enough lobby group for them to lower the ATMs, gas pumps, automatic, you know, gas pumps, uh, anything that you need to uh, use that needs a push or a pull or a turn uh, has to be, cannot be higher. The accessible piece can't be higher than 48 inches. Well, and that it doesn't just help people of small stature. It helps those in wheelchairs or with other kinds of physical challenges. That's where I'm going with this. So we collaborated with other disabilities, I did research and discovered that 
there will be 500,000 people, at least a half a million people, that will benefit from lowering the height. Mm. And, of course, when you get a regulation change, this was a building code change, started in state and local building code standards, then we it, we were able to carry it through into the federal code, which is under the ADA, the Americans with Disabilities Act. So now it is also federal law, and that was a very long process, which took a lot of energy and time, uh, but it was well worth it uh, to 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 make this happen. But anyone who wants to know how you get through these things, as the uh, always an advocate discusses that in detail and shows the demand for uh, perseverance, a lot of patience, a lot of ability, uh, willingness to to work with people who you who don't agree with you at all, but you have to talk to them anyway because you need to find out what makes them tick. Why are they so opposed? I even had to talk to the um, in this standard-setting organization uh, called American National Standards Institute. It's a very long name, but I uh, was talking to the representative for physical therapists, and you'd think she would be supporting uh, access, a change to uh, accommodate people with physical problems. And there she was voting with industry. So I actually got myself seated next to her one meeting and a point blank asked her, I said, why? Why are you voting with industry and against the people you're here to represent? And it's like apparently that pulled her up, you know, and, and not literally in the moment, but made her start thinking about that. Mm. So when it came time for the final vote, and there were actually many votes along the way, but she did vote for access. And, and so it's really important when you're advocating for something that's unpopular, and it was definitely unpopular uh, mm. when I started out in there and uh, in that uh, setting because it wasn't my normal place to be with building owners and architects and engineers and, you know, building code officials and manufacturers. I mean, it, it was a whole big learning curve. So if you want to advocate for something, you really have to find out where do I go, who's responsible for this decision to put this up at so high that I can't reach it. Mm-hmm. Who do I go to to talk about getting a change? Well, and the resistance seems of two types. One is either a lack of understanding or empathy for the condition, and the other one is because it costs money to change things sometimes. The money, and and the people money, yeah. people get kind of hinky when you start talking about the project. Right. So. Angela, I want to switch gears just for a second and, and talk about here you are. You're this amazing dynamo of a person, oh. uh, what, whatever your size, you're a dynamo. And I want to go back and, and think about what it was like to grow up and be you. And when, what were the hard, what is the hard part about this? Not only the health challenges, but were there times in your growing up time that this was just a really painful or difficult thing for you? You sound so boisterously self-assured that I, <laughs> that I want to, I want to ask about a time when perhaps that wasn't so. Uh, well, you know, I think the teenage years are the hardest because when your friends start dating and, you know, I had lots of friends and, and many of them were boys, but when it came time to ask somebody to the school dance, well, I wasn't the one they asked. Mm. So, you know, you, you feel left out and I had times uh, and the same, you know, even at university, 
I had friends, but, you know, there was no romance associated with it. So, yes, that's, that really is one of the hardest things to deal with, I think. Yeah. But um, the thing, the way that I got through this is first, I, I have to credit my parents because they raised me as they did my brother and sister with the same expectations. And your brother and sister are, are of average size. Correct. And and that's more common than not. Most families, uh, when they have a, a, a dwarf child, if there's usually, you know, only one uh, in the family, but of course there are exceptions if it's depends on their genetics. You know, we won't go there. We don't have time for that. But there are families with more than one. Um, but if, if it's an average-sized couple having a child, they usually don't have many children with dwarfism. They may, so I'll leave it at that. But So, yes, I was expected to do my chores. I was disciplined when I, uh, you know, didn't do what I was supposed to do. And um, my mother had to be really strong because uh, we, if she was, you know, stopping me from doing something or... Uh, in public, she would be. People would came up to her and said, "Oh, you can't t- talk to her like that," you know, because I was kind of cute, <laughs> <laughs> and I was always little, much smaller than, uh, you know, I'm smaller than an adult, but I was always smaller than all the kids. So, right. you know, I looked maybe at when I was seven or eight, I might have looked like I was three or something. And, and here she was giving you. A yeah. mother's natural corrections for a seven and eight year old. Yes. She was treating you like the the age that you were, yes, but yes. it looked as though she was talking to a two year old. Right, right. And so my mother remembered uh, her saying to this elderly man. Oh, he probably wasn't that elderly, but to me, he was at the time. She knows exactly what she's doing. <laughs> <laughs> well, so it sounds like your your parents raised you to have this. I was going to say this, this strong backbone, ironically, but the, to have this core identity of being treated just like everybody else, having the same expectations. Yeah, I had that. Yeah. Also, our family, we were a Christian family. And so I grew up as a young child um, coming to know Jesus as as my uh friend and my strength and I always throughout my whole life when I was feeling really down or desperate and why isn't this working out and 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 it's like I I would pray and read my bible and find strength in that and so everything I have done has always come back to what does God want me to do and and every decision I've made as an adult I've trusted him to do the best for me because that's what he's promised. So your faith is a, a place where you draw strength as well. Oh, yes, yes, yes. So I, w- I want to touch on one more thing with our limited time, if I may. Mm-hmm. And that is, in your bio, I read that part of your advocacy was to help ban dwarf tossing, which is just such a bizarre and weird and horrifying thing to me. Yes. How recently has that still been legal in the U.S.? Well, it's it's hasn't there hasn't been a need for a law until it pops up out of the blue. So there are there's only two states where it's actually against the law, and you're wait wait wait. There's only two states where this is against the law. Correct. So dwarf tossing, which is a game where you literally throw the body of some of of a dwarf person. Yes. Of, yes. For a, some sort of weird competition, I'm gathering. Yeah. I, yeah. I, they I can't get, imagine. They get um, people pay. 
uh, to enter, and so you can throw the dwarf the farthest. The far the dwarf person is um, volunteer, obviously willing, and um, is paid is on on stuff if you want to call it hmm. stuff but no the, it's a, a sideshow kind of thing and it was going on in, in bars and pubs and places where they do crazy things you know and uh would it be a drinking crowd when it first was going on uh it was florida florida and new york are the two states with laws and chicago it came up in illinois uh, we were able to shut it down. A little people of America was able to stop it in Chicago through public relations. And then in Florida, what happened, it needed to be a, a law because they took their show on the road. And whenever you, if I wasn't living here at the time, but every time you'd go to the local government officials to put a stop to it, they moved on to the next town. Mm. So the only way to stop it was a state law, and that same thing happened in New York. But and you can't get a law passed unless you show there's a problem. So if it's not happening in your state, so you have to wait until it pops up. It, yes. it, it it's astounding to me. But if, but of course, I have to also say, you know, I find that MMA fighting and strange, there's all kinds of strange people, strange things that people will subject themselves to. Yes. But this this one just has a, a particularly vulgar hint to it. So I want to I want to ask you, in addition to your faith. Another part of what you've really focused on too is your marriage. Yes. That you and your partner have have forged this this life together. Tell me what what it is about your partnership that gives you the strength to continue carrying on and doing what you each do. Well, I, I guess well, I shouldn't say I guess. Love is the key mm. to that. Uh, but a lot of. Um, you know, we're both little people. Uh, we both are very strong-willed, <laughs> and that in a marriage can be a problem. Um, well, I imagine you're subject to the same problems that yes, uh, every it's marriage the same has. as everyone. So, uh, a lot of people that um, get married as little people that are attracted to each other because of their commonality relating to their dwarfism that is not enough to keep a marriage running. Uh, it might get it started, but not keep it going. Now. We've been married for 40 years, but at the 10-year mark, we did have to go to counseling. We were having communication issues. My husband had developed workaholic traits, and so he wasn't coming home, and it was like, well, this is not good. Um, so we were having all kinds of problems. So we did go to counseling. The therapist thought, oh, yeah, we can take care of this in a couple of sessions, or 12 sessions later. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, and that's, we still, just, that's still, I'm a therapist. I can tell you 12 is pretty short yeah <laughs> so, yeah so, so, that's, so that's a good we kind of had like about as much as we could take at that time that we needed to put into practice what he was teaching us and um yes yeah, so and there are times uh you know you go through where things are going great and things when they're not going so well so you you just hang in there it's a commitment you you just accept that this or not all gonna be good you're saying pretty much what i was getting from your book which is that many of the the things that you went through as a couple are exactly what my partner and I go through, what other yes. go through. And so there, there are some wonderful anecdotes in there that can help inspire couples of any size. Correct. For, for those who want to learn more about advocacy, uh, that your book, Always an Advocate, has many, many resources. For those who may have a child or a loved one with dwarfism or with 
other physical limitations, there's so many resources in all of your books about how to find what you need, how to how to press on, how to insist <laughs> upon what what is required. And I, I thank you for the good fight that you're fighting on behalf of those who have physical challenges. I'm so grateful that you are using your brilliant mind and your sharp wit and your good humor and your advocacy to help people like yourself and so, so many, many more. Thank you, Angela Muir Van Etten, for being part of the Morning Glory Project and sharing your story with me today. Thank you very much. Since my conversation with Angela Muir Van Etten, I've been thinking about pedestals and how we talk about them. When we say we put someone up on a pedestal, that sounds like a compliment, doesn't it? We elevate them. In other words, we hold them as steam, like as if they were a statue in a museum. And sometimes I, I often hear women say, oh, you know, that, that a man puts them on a pedestal and they feel special in that way. But the way that Angela was talking about it is that it's as if she's treated specially just because of her physical challenges, as if she's somehow virtuous or better than because of that, which is ironic because I think often we look at people with physical challenges, limited abilities, whatever vernacular is comfortable for you. We look at folks in a negative way. We put them below the standard that we would hope for others. We think that they can do less or they're less capable. And in, in the case of dwarfism, as Angela talked about, they're often thought of as children or less developed or less mature or less capable. But it seems to me when I think about pedestals in general, they're really better used for statues than for people. When we elevate someone on a pedestal because of love or romance or because of admiration, then it seems that a pedestal is sort of an, a shaky platform, isn't it? <laughs> it can tip over. And if someone has or reveals, of course, the, the flaws or the errors or challenges that they have, then all of a sudden they're knocked off that pedestal. The more I think about it, the less I like the idea of being put on one. It seems kind of lonely up there as a statue by yourself. I think I'd rather sit beside someone on a bench and have a conversation than be elevated to a pedestal. It seems that mutuality, reciprocity, mutual respect, seeing each other as equals, even if we're different, seems like a way better way than popping people up onto and knocking them off of pedestals. That's my extra bloom for today. Just something I've been thinking about. Thanks so much for listening to the Morning Glory Project. I'm always honored by your time. And I hope that wherever you are, that you're finding beautiful little ray of sunlight that's allowing you to bloom. <laughs>